0: Hey there, romantics! I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support.
0: If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of romance. Thank you so much for listening. <sighs> Morgan. I'm Isabeau. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About boring pirates. About buried treasure. About a pleasant sensual tingle of awareness. About taking charge of three strange children. About being hot for a teacher who is teacher hot. About embezzlement. About gambling addictions. About family secrets. About wards. About globes. About your lesbian aunts. And the lesbian you were engaged to. The Le Three Beans. (laughs) But most of all, it's about that person. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, we
1: are diving headfirst into (laughs) Amanda Quick's Deception.
0: Work on a plank. I'm a parrot.
1: Chosen entirely for you by Isabeau from a box of alley romances <laughs> that I picked up on the internet from a stranger.
0: Speaking of wards. Speaking of wards.
1: <laughs> I rescued this piece from the dumpster and I bring it to you entirely because of its step back cover. Let's talk about the step back.
0: Okay. Normally, we would open with a summary. Let's hear a description of this step back. We have
1: a beautiful, might I say, Titian redhead on the cover in a pink dress. She's Titian because she can wear pink. Not all redheads can wear pink. I don't know if you know that. And behind her in a pirate shirt and with a velvet eye patch, we've got our hero. We've got three small boy children all looking like little Lord Fauntleroy. We've got a pirate ship on fire. We've got two very handsome 1776 cosplayers. We've got our pirate going to town on our lady's neck. She's in blue in this dress, kissing the underside of her chin, her jowl. Her jowl, indeed.
0: Not quite neck. Then we've got... I'm not a chin, not yet a neck.
1: (laughs) Good one. We've got Mandy Patinkin fighting the dread pirate Roberts on a map of India. It's on a map of India? It's on a map of India. Is that what they think the West Indies are? (laughs) I guess that's what we're supposed to, like, assume.
0: Okay. Why don't I just put, like, some scribbles and do, like, a made-up country? You might as well. You might as well. Go full J.R. Tolkien if you're doing something like this. Full bore. It'll age better. (laughs) It'll age better. So she has, like, very dark hair. She has very dark red hair. She has that kind of early 2000s maroon, almost. Mm -hmm. What year was this book published? 1993. Ninety three. So Julia Roberts' dark hair, maybe? Dark red? Yes, very Julia Ro- That's exactly right. 1993 winner, best picture, Unforgiven. Oh, with Clint Eastwood.
1: Yeah, and Morgan Freeman.
0: Yeah. So a Western won best picture. Best pop vocal performance went to Katie Lang, Constant Craving, ha-cha-cha. Best pop vocal performance, Male, went to Tears in Heaven, Eric Clapton, Oh my god, Uh, Celine Dion and Peebo Bryson won for Beauty and the Beast. Ah, Tale as Old as Time. Tale as Old as Time. Kind of a sweep. Boys to Men End of the Road won for Best R&B Performance. Best Rap Solo Performance, Sir Mix-a-Lot Baby Got Back. What a year, 93 was. What a year, 93. Wow, okay. What lost Best Picture? The crime game was ninety-three. <laughs> Howard's End, Scent of a Woman, do an Al Pacino impression. Do you have one of those? No, not. Oh hey. It was like he was in the room. Oh my god, man has got such a big guess. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, Al Pacino for two and a half seconds.
0: Isabel's face lit up. She was so excited to have a third person to talk to. That wasn't me. (laughs) I was like, who's the mystery? It's It's me, Al Pacino. Scarface himself. That's awful. (laughs) That's uncanny. (laughs) Okay, so all of this is swirling and Deception by Amanda Quick is released. May I read the back of the book to you, Isabel? Please. From a cozy cottage in rustic Dorset to a magnificent mansion steeped in secrets comes a dazzling tale of lost pirate gold and legendary love. Once, Olympia Wingfield has been free to devote all her time to her true passion, the study of ancient legends and long-lost treasure. But now, with three hellion nephews to raise, the absent-minded beauty has very little time for research. What makes it seem all the more serendipitous when a handsome stranger strides into Olympia's library unannounced and proceeds to set her world to rights? Tall and dark, with long windswept black hair, Jared Ryder, V. Count Chilhurst, is the embodiment of Olympia's most exotic dreams. A daring pirate masquerading in teacher's garb, whose plundering kisses and traveler's tales quickly win her heart. Yet. All too soon, innocent Olympia will discover that the enigmatic and wickedly sensual Chilhurst is no lowly tutor, but a future earl with a wealth of secrets, the kind that will lead them both on a perilous quest for hidden fortune and love worth more than gold. Da-da-da! Cool. That gives us a lot to work with. I think we
1: should start with Chilhurst. v Count Chilhurst. What a Jared. great
0: character name, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. I think the character names are actually doing quite a
0: C-lot. They're doing a C-ton of work <laughs> in character a- building. That's a joke because there's characters with the last name C-ton in there. Like, that's supposed to be like a, it was right there the whole time. They were wealthy sea people. They were wealthy sea people.
1: I feel like it's good that we're doing this. I kind of wish that we'd done this a little bit earlier in the pandemic when the sea shanty TikTok thing went viral. That
0: was like five minutes ago.
1: Right. I love a good sea shanty. I'm always down for some sea times. So let's talk about Jared, our sea hero.
0: I would like you to tell us about Jared in the form of a sea shanty.
1: Way hey and up Jared rises, way hey and up Jared rises, way hey. Up Jared rises early in the morning. He rises early because he loves banking. He rises early because he loves banking. He rises early because he loves banking early in the morning. Jared only has one eye. <laughs> <laughs> That's, all
0: got. <laughs> That's so much. That was incredible. I, like, wasn't even breathing. <laughs> I was scared to, like, throw you off your course. It was amazing. Uh,
1: yeah, so, Jared, I'm like his hot-blooded buccaneer slash pirate
0: family. Flamecrest, Crest, the Flame Crests, Chillhurst of the Flame Crests, the famous flame crests of the Isle of Flame. Flame.
1: <laughs> Off of the coast of Devon. He is a chilled blooded banker and merchant. His dad and his uncle are always accusing him of having the heart of a merchant. A descendant of a long line of pirates. Right. So this is a scurrilous thing to call him. It's an insult. They don't like him.
0: Well, they don't understand him.
1: They don't understand him. And Jared feels that very entirely. He sold his mother's necklace that was supposed to go to his wife to rescue the family finances and now they all enjoy the fruits of his hard-won labor in the financial markets but they constantly make him feel bad about it he lost his eye defending and saving his two cousins in spain doesn't like to talk about it wears a velvet eye patch i do love that it's velvet i wish we had talked about that more in the book like the velvety feel of the patch
0: Well, it's such a luxurious touch. Yes. That it's kind of baffling to me that whenever he meets our heroine, that she's, like, not tipped off, that he might be, like, a little bit more well-to-do than your average tutor.
1: And I also think it speaks to this private part of himself that his family, like, refuses to see or understand. It's almost like Dr. Bones calling Spock, like, a green-blooded goblin, like, you've got no heart in you. It's like, there's very much, like, that sense sometimes. And it's like, no person who didn't love aesthetics and have like a burning passion for lots of shit would purchase a velvet eye patch. Like if he's as practical as you guys are accusing him of, he wouldn't even wear an eye patch, okay? (laughs)
0: Well, see, that's the thing. Like, I I think his identity is formed in his family as opposition to them, as opposed to, like, a different version, right? Right. Because I can see him being the kind of person who can justify something that luxurious by being like, well, I'm going to wear it every day. And if I (laughs) calculate it based on everyday wear, yes, exactly, it's half a penny each day to wear this eye patch." One of my favorite moments in the text is when our heroine, and eventually discovers his true identity and then meets his father and his uncle who then take her shopping. Mm-hmm. And they purchased for her these luxurious emerald and diamond earrings, and she's overwhelmed by the gesture. And they're like, "Don't be weird about it. Your husband paid for it. It's totally fine." And she's like, "Oh my god, he picked these out?" And they're like, "No, no, 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 no. He would never." And this is so reflective of my own frustration with wealthy people: is that I could spend the money better. And if there's ever an argument for maintaining a monarchy that's not like the British monarchy, but like the Versailles monarchy, it's Versailles. It's like we need some people with like completely unrestrained subconsciouses to be given a lot of cash to do with what they will, because that's how you get really good, beautiful stuff. That's where you get the envelope pushed. That's where you get a whole hallway of mirrors. That's where you get eight acres of garden. You know,
1: I'm not against this argument on its face because I agree. I don't think we ever would have gotten parquet floors without rich people being like, this is how we're going to make floors beautiful. And you know what? I love parquet. I
0: love parquet.
1: Anytime I fucking walk on it. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, we need people who are like, wood floors are beautiful. Let's make them harder to install. Let's make them harder to install
1: and more expensive just for being on them. And you have to like polish them in a specific way.
0: What's cool about parquet floors is that they're wood floors, but with more pieces. They're so gorgeous.
1: So like, I'm here for this argument, but like the thing about the earrings in particular is that they give her these beautiful emeralds and then she's like, oh, Jared got that for me. And they're like, no, he would never. That's not how he spends his time or his money. Like he just gave it to us. And then she's like, well, now I don't even fucking want him. Yeah. Which is like the gift of the gift isn't the gift. It's the time I spent showing you that I know you. But I love that,
0: like, they don't have any of their own money. The uncles spend money good. Right? Like, that's the joke. Yeah.
1: It's all Jared's money. Yeah.
0: That's the gag, right? Like, they're like, oh, everything would be purchased by your husband because he's wakes up early in the morning because he loves banking. He do. And we wake up early in the morning because we love emeralds. Like, <laughs> that's the joke. And like, so I, I I like it. My favorite characters are Magnus and Thaddeus.
1: Magnus and Thaddeus are impossible not to like because it's not that they don't like Jared. They do. They really do love him. It's truly that they don't understand him, that they do see it as oppositional, that like he has been so successful at rescuing the family finances, at rescuing the family honor, at saving the mansion from basically falling into the sea. And I think you're right to see like the way that he kind of lives his life is almost like both a physical, but also like an unspoken condemnation of Magnus and Thaddeus. Yes. And I think that's hard for them because they're good people. They're funny. They're just like luxurious, beautiful idiots.
0: That's exactly right. Like I watch a lot of a YouTube channel that is a family therapist analyzing 90 Day Fiance. And one of the things he pointed out is that the reason why it's so difficult for parents whenever their children take on like a different theory, a different lifestyle, a different political leaning than them, is that they feel like it's a condemnation of their own choices. Like, you can't really live and let live because you, like, formed this creature. And the fact that this creature has decided, like, I'm gonna have this completely different lifestyle than what you had, feels like the creature is now being like, your lifestyle sucked! Like... Mm skateboards off into the sunset yeah that's how it feels and it's not what it really is and what i thought was so interesting is that this book is really interested in tabling the turns turning the tables on expectation so first let's clarify who magnus and thaddeus are
1: So Magnus is the current Earl of Flamecrest. He is Jared's dad and Thaddeus is his uncle. Magnus and Thaddeus basically function like twins and Thaddeus has as much of a parental role over Jared as it seems to me Magnus does.
0: The two old men in the Muppets. Yes. Yes
1: heckling the young, very ambitious man.
0: The young, sexy Kermit. Exactly. Jared is very much a young, sexy Kermit, is he not?
1: He is, absolutely. That's the perfect way of thinking about him. There is not a better way.
0: But they were pirates for fun. Their father, I believe, or their grandfather, had established the family wealth via piracy and then over two generations they squandered it all because they were having a great time buying emeralds and fighting each other and, you know, very real housewife wives. Mm-hmm. And then Jared comes along and decides to set everything to rights, allowing his family to continue with their like play acting basically. Mm-hmm. Well, all the while, you know, being able to maintain their wealth and he's doing a deal and that's how he meets our heroine's uncle who lives abroad and what he does is he collects things like silks and then he sends them over to England and then she sells them for a profit and that's how they maintain their lifestyle they are not of the gentry So Jared meets this guy and he's like, okay, I'm going to help you transport these spices and silks over to England and then I'll deliver them safely to your niece and then I'll go about my business. But then he meets the niece. He meets the niece. Olympia. Oh, but there's also like an understanding that Olympia is in possession of this family heirloom that Thaddeus and Magnus really want translated.
1: Yes, The Elizabeth Claiborne diary? Yes,
0: yeah, which is featured prominently on the cover of the novel. Indeed. So that's included in the parcel, and she's wanted it, and she reads and writes Latin and Greek, so she can translate these difficult passages in this diary. And they want her to do that because they believe that this diary is the key to unlocking a lost treasure. And as the frivolous, silly ones of the bunch, that's what they're interested in uncovering. Jared is humoring them, although he has very little interest Interest in this lost treasure. Why bother? He's already made investments. Right. He's practically salvaged the whole thing. So why go
1: on a wild goose chase to the uncharted island in the West Indies where his great grandfather hid a glorious pirate slash buccaneer?
0: Yeah. Why bother? Why bother? But then he meets our heroine. And so he decides he is going to go through with the plan and he's going to stay close to her because she's so pretty and not like other girls.
1: She's not like other girls. In fact, I want to deconstruct their meeting before we get into Olympia. The meat cute. The meat cute is actually quite important for understanding both characters. And not very cute. And not cute at all, in fact. Mm-hmm. Meet scary. Meat scary. She has inherited this small country estate from her maiden aunt, who took her in when she was 10 after her parents died.
0: And she had been jostled around.
1: Right. Jostled around. Unloved. Not unlike Jane Eyre. But she lands with these two benevolent ladies, and they give her a very unconventional upbringing. So she learns Latin and Greek, but not how to dance. And she knows all about geography, but not about other stuff. So she's in her glorious library. And there's a man there who is ostensibly holding the ladder for her while she's getting a tome off the high shelf. And she's talking about this legend of the South Seas. And like he's pretending to be interested. And then like he's getting more and more strained. His face gets red when she glances down at him. And then she realizes that he can see all the way up her skirt. And then she's like, oh, shit, I have to get off this ladder. Like, fuck this guy. And she's really uncomfortable. He
0: won't let her off the ladder. And then can I read this slide? Yeah, go ahead. Nothing's wrong, Mr. Dracot. I found the volumes I wanted. I'm coming down now. You may step aside. Allow me to assist you. Dracot's soft, pudgy hands brushed against the calves of Olympia's legs beneath her muslin skirts. Yeah. Uh-oh.
1: Yeah, he's straight up accosting her on this ladder. She manages to get down, and then he pursues her across the library, like, is manhandling her, is, like, kind of throwing her down on the couch. He does throw her down on the couch. She's doing everything that she can to, like, both salvage the situation, but also protect herself. In walks Jared onto this scene, knocks Mr. Dre caught out cold. Yes. And is like, are you all right, Miss Wingfield? And she's like, it's fine. It was just a misunderstanding. Like, something overcame him. It's totally fine. And he's like... it's not fine. You were literally just accosted by this piece of shit. Yeah. And like, he should never be allowed back here. And she's like, no, it's a misunderstanding. And like Jared immediately, like what was so interesting to me about that scene was both the fact that she did understand what was happening. And that she was making excuses for Mr. Draycott to salvage their relationship in a way that they could continue to be social with one another. And that Jared doesn't allow that and is like, no, this is the truth of the thing. It's not safe for you to be with this person and validates her actual experience of it.
0: But I would say this is like the first kind of meta moment of what I would argue there are many meta moments in this romance novel that seems to be almost commenting on other romance novels in a really conscientious way and I think I can argue for its conscientiousness I know that I say this all the time like I think well the last time I said it was a week to be wicked and you know fair enough like you can't really make that argument most of the time when I make it but here I do feel like just because of the pervasiveness because it's like everything is structured. Structured in opposition, I do feel like it's commenting on romance itself. So we have this scene of a bodice ripping, and this hero comes in, just conks the guy on the head, completely eliminates the threat, and also names it explicitly to the heroine, who all the time is making apologies for it, right? And he's like, no. And that immediately tells you, like, even though this is a guy with an eye patch and long hair, and I think he also has like a blouse, a Seinfeld blouse on. Indeed. This isn't going to be a pirate romance novel. And it's not a pirate romance novel, period. (laughs) Yeah, period. Even though the back of the book seems like it really wants to trick you into thinking that it's going to be so that it can pull the rug out from under you. Right. I mean, at most,
1: it's a Muppet Treasure Island with Captain Kermit as our titular hero, because like that's
0: what it is. It doesn't even come close to that.
1: (laughs) But what I'm saying is like our titular hero that he's not a pirate captain and he won't be. But more importantly, he's constantly validating Olympia's lived experience, even as she is doing what she's socialized to do which is accept male violence or accept things that are like really nasty and problematic. Like he functions as a space to be like, that's not right. That's not right.
0: But he also like He just takes care of it. Like, the first half of this novel is just, like, sinking into a warm bath of just take care of it. Like, he's not successfully an alpha hero. Another meta point is going to come up towards the end of the book. But he just takes care of it. So, I remember when you and I were discussing, like, the appeal of shifter romances. And this idea of having, like, a super problematic, right, air quotes, alpha... And I say air quotes because it exists in a novel that's created for fantasy purposes. He comes in, he realizes that she's being taken for a ride by her neighbor who does all of the selling. He goes, he confronts the neighbor. He says, I'm going to take care of the sales from now on. He doesn't burden her with any of it. Like, he continues to pretend to be a tutor for her three young wards. Hellions all. Yeah. And he says, Oh, your uncle sent me to deliver this stuff and also to be a tutor for these three young boys, ostensibly so that he can, like, monitor her translation of the diary. But really, because he thinks she's so pretty and cool mm-hmm but he like takes care of everything for her without involving her and so she is allowed to be this creative, thought leader. She has all of the time and space. He raises the children for her. Mm -hmm. He manages the household for her so that she can write about other (laughs) cultures. For hours and hours a day. Hours and hours and
1: translate this diary. And then at night they share a brandy and talk about her work. Yeah. Like the fantasy of Jared in the first half of this book. You say warm bath and I'm like warm bubble bath with a glass of of wine and like some weird ass music and like someone is rubbing my feet while it's happening like the competence of Jared and as you say not involving her right
0: yeah it's more than competence porn though
1: yeah because he's giving her the space
0: like he doesn't put it on her plate at all. Exactly. His competency is at taking things off of her plate. It's not like he's like really good at military strategy Mm-mm. or like a really great pirate. Like, no, he's just very good at like all of these like women's roles. The thing that makes me think that it's meta is the fact that he looks like a pirate. And the book can't quit commenting on the fact that he like doesn't cut his long black hair and that he has an eye patch and that he's wearing a blouse. <laughs> like it's obsessed with that idea. And so it feels like it's definitely like doing a little twist. I agree. It's obsessed with that idea. But I think it's
1: the coupling of that image of Jared with his women's roles. He's educating the kids. He's taking charge of the house. And when we say taking charge of the house, he's taking charge of the house much like a wife would. He's giving orders to the housekeeper. He's like deciding the meals, which is something we always see women do. And like he's doing other stuff, like taking care of this guy, the neighbor who's taking advantage of her sales but like he's really putting her house in order because that's not the thing that she's interested in she's very much an absent-minded professor and like that's where she wants to be that's where her competencies lie and so like him taking over the feminine role of house is so important in this book and for 1993 feels like a massive thing
0: yeah he as a hero fulfills so much of my dream (laughs) he's competent in particular He's probably got some Scorpio placements somewhere in there. And also, like, I think it's important to note, like, it's not like the book ever calls attention to the fact that he's doing this women's work. And in fact, it talks about how he's so, like, excited. <laughs> he's like, oh, a real challenge to get this house in order, you know, and he's shuffling his papers and neatening the corners, right? Yeah. It's something that's really exciting for him, and that he's excited to do the work itself, and he's pleased that it allows Olympia to pursue her interests because he likes her so darn much. Mm-hmm. And I... Oh, It's just... It's so good. And because it's like... Oh, oh, the other thing. Can I call attention to one more thing? Sure, but then I want to get this thing out. Okay, cool. He doesn't manage anything with violence. Right. So when he goes to talk to her neighbor, he's like, hey, guy, time for you to be honest with me about what's going on in your life. And the guy's like, I have a gambling problem. He's like, that sounds really tough. Here's what you're going to do to make it right. And he lays out a process of self-improvement for this crook for this liar for this man who has threatened his family or threatened his lover and instead of approaching him being like outside fisticuffs he's like i want to hear your side of the story
1: Yeah, I want to come back to the denial of violence, because I think that's really important, especially as we talk about Magnus and Thaddeus and the pirate legacy. Yeah, yeah. I think it is really important. And a particular kind of masculinity is being described here. But one of the reasons why I think this book from 1993 struck me so hard right now is because as he like takes stuff off her plate, he doesn't talk to her about it. And like, part of me is like, that's awesome. Part of me is like, that's not so great in some ways.
0: What are some ways that it's not so great?
1: I feel like he should have told her that the neighbor was taking advantage of her and like, he doesn't tell her that. He just like, sells the goods at a much higher price and like, sort of just like, shows her how much money he
0: got for her.
1: Right, and like, she'll fill in the gap or she won't, but he never like, comes out and says, you've been swindled and like, whatever. I don't have a particular animus about that. Like, anyway, the thing about it that struck me from like, 1993, to 2021 is this idea that Jared gets the mental load. And he sees that she's really been struggling with the mental load of trying to figure out what to do with her three wards, what to do with Mrs. Bird, what to do with her house, what to do, because she's also financially responsible for making sure that her uncle can continue to have funds to do what he's doing. And so he sees all of her responsibilities and he's just like, I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll take that. I'll report back when I'm done. I'll take that. I'll take that. And like, it was so fucking sexy and validating to see
0: a (laughs) man just It felt so (laughs) good to read it. Well, it's also like, it feels so good to watch a man in popular culture. And like, I didn't even bother looking up the year this book was published, although 1993 is shocking to me, especially because this is the first time I'm encountering a hero who does what I want them to do exactly right. More on that later, because of course, your wish is always going to be granted in a way you're not necessarily pleased with. But he listens, like he wants to know the whole story. He doesn't make assumptions. We discover along with him that Olympia herself was in a position that her three young nephews were in up until they arrived at her house. And so there isn't an option to send them to a boarding school like she knows too intimately how that would feel. And she wants to recreate this life that her aunts created for her. But Jared is also cognizant of the fact that these are three little boys. It's not one girl coming to live with her two confirmed bachelorette aunts, which I love the way the book handles lesbianism. Me too. I could have done with like a little bit more explicitness to it, right? Like she talks about how her one aunt was related to her. The other aunt was not is the implication. So what makes her an aunt, right? But like Jared recognizes that he's like, these are like three rambunctious boys. Like they need something different, something that I can provide them. And I can also provide her with a peace of mind because she doesn't like sending them away to school isn't an option for her because of her personal tie to this exact experience. But the book doesn't go out of its way for him to be like, listen, sounds like you had a hard time. So now I'm going to come in and fix it. Like he's never prescriptive. Yes, he's never prescriptive. And when you said
1: earlier, he doesn't make assumptions. And like, I don't want anybody to think that Olympia is making certain kinds of assumptions either. She is absent-minded. She is very much a cerebral character and heroine. But when he says that he's been hired as a tutor, she immediately without like, she doesn't ask for his references, which like she should. Right. She just says, oh, my uncle met you. Good enough for me. Right. Good enough for me. But she does say like, what are your thoughts on corporal punishment? And she does read. Really lay down the law about like you are not to beat these boys even though I know that's in vogue like they've already been traumatized enough and he's like no I think like beating a horse or a child either creates a broken spirit or creates a real meanness and I was like oh boy and I know that like this is 1993 like talking at like 1818 talking to us now in 2021 but to like have her stand she's like I'm not gonna look for your references but you can't just walk in here right like I need to know what kind of tutor you're going to be for these boys and that like they can have this very professional conversation about how they're going to get on together and that they don't make those assumptions That moment, I think, then speaks to like the ethos of Jared going forward, where it's like violence is always the last resort and it's never a good resort, even when it is the last resort, which is shocking for a quote unquote pirate romance.
0: There's a moment when a moment there's a whole fucking thing where... Robert, the oldest boy, they go to Vauxhall Gardens the night of Jared and Olympia's marriage, which I don't know about the marriage, whatever. So they go to Vauxhall, Vauxhall, Vauxhall. Vauxhall. We've been there a few times on this show. And Robert wants to be a brave little toaster and go to the dark part of the maze at night. He gets kidnapped. And what strikes me is Jared goes to recover him, meets the kidnapper, still is not pressured to violence, is still like, let me negotiate with you. I'm a man with money. I can provide you with money. It's not until the very end (laughs) that he reacts with absolute violence. And what's interesting is, is that he brings a knife to a gunfight and wins. So there are so many subplots in this book. There are
1: a lot of subplots in this book.
0: And I wonder if the author didn't feel pressure to include all of these levels, because as wonderful as he is, Jared does not make for good TV. It's funny that you say that, because I think the best
1: parts of Jared TV are like, really quiescent and like what i mean by that is like the moments that i was most enthralled and interested in jared and olympia as people growing together is like this whole thing that he does after everybody's had dinner and they've had like a hard day of her cerebral intellectual work and him like tutoring because he's pretending to be this tutor even though he's a fucking v count and they like have brandy together in her library with like this very pleasant blaze and he like tells her stories to like seduce her and he like tells stories that that like are made up and there's like doing it to like seduce her, which I love as a trope. I am always here for someone to use a story as a narrative to try to get someone else to like, get in with them. And it was very evocative to me. And this is a really nerdy reference. But there's an episode of Star Trek Voyager, wherein Captain Janeway, our only female captain until recently, and her first mate, her first officer, Chakotay, have a very similar experience where he tells her this story, basically saying like, I'd be down if you're down to clown. But I understand that you're in a position of authority over me. And so like, maybe you can't. The reason why I bring up Chakotay and Janeway is because in the first half of this book, She is his employer. And like, that's the way that they both treat each other. And so when they finally get together, she's the one that has to overcome this. Like, I am your employer. Like, is that okay? Like, I want to have sex with you. And he's like, I am super into that. I will 100% have sex with you.
0: Well, when he's confronted by the housekeeper, because the housekeeper discovers her discarded chemise and cap, in the library she accuses him of ravaging her and he says actually it was me who was ravished
1: which is right because at this moment she is technically his employer even though we know as the dramatic irony is that he's the v count and of course just pretending
0: yeah and of course when that realization comes because they go to london because she wants to pursue her academic Stuff And it turns out she's a very big deal in her like adventure society or whatever. And she goes to London and they rent like a little house in an unfashionable part of town. Right. And he thinks he's going to get in and get out of London without anyone knowing that the V count is here. And it doesn't work out because his former fiance runs into him at the aquarium with her confirmed gal pal Constance. Suddenly, like the stakes are still present. We get this really viscerally embarrassing scene where Demetria and Constance and Demetria's brother, who is a great nemesis of Jared, Because Jared called off the engagement whenever he caught his fiancee and flagrante with cryptically someone else. A lover. A lover, right? No other detail provided, right? So he calls off the engagement, but he doesn't want to like ruin her prospects. So he doesn't say anything about it. He's like, I just called it off. So Demetria's brother thinks that like this is a great slight. This is like the wealthy, and specifically some family dynamics that are gonna get into like the overarching mystery, is denying my sister and this is a great insult to our name so he wants to duel he refuses to go to a duel what a great hero what a boring bad tv good hero jared is truly defined by what he doesn't do not by what he does do right yeah So we have this scene where she is now aware that she has been housing a V count and some relics of the gentry come to visit her at her modest Airbnb and her housekeeper gets all a Twitter because she's serving the ton and makes an absolute mess of things. And all our heroine Olympia wants to do is get out of this situation and she makes it worse by just trying to expedite things in this really like unnatural way. And then Jared comes in and immediately everything stops because it turns out it's not actually like about your manner or your conduct. It's just about rank. That's how you can control a situation. So her housekeeper spills tea and then insists that everyone stay for the tea and drink the tea and like won't let people leave. It's very humiliating.
1: Not only is it humiliating in the text, But it's also heightened by, because we're in Olympia's perspective in that moment. And she has a massive headache. It's almost described like a migraine. She keeps referring to it as the headache, but it's this building sensation of stress. Yeah, it's totally of stress. And her housekeeper's like, oh, no, you have the headache. And I was like, oh, shit, are they describing a migraine? Like it's progressively where she's got this pounding in her temples. And then she has to pretend stuff that she doesn't know. Her aunts didn't really prepare her to be a socialite in the ton. There was no reason she should have been. Exactly. No reason. I'm not I'm not casting aspersions on the aunts. And like Mrs. Bird is like. As you say, all the Twitter, she wants people to fucking drink her tea. And like everything is just like cacophonious in the in her head. And then Jared walks in. Everybody fucking leaves because he's the V count. And then she's like storming up the stairs because she wants to go lay down in a dark room because everything's so bright and so loud. Mm hmm. And then he's like, Madam, will you marry me? And she's like, I guess if I
0: have to, (laughs) and storms up the stairs. Because he's already lied and told people that she's his wife. Right. Which was originally her idea to get away with it. If anyone was like casting aspersions, to immediately borrow the term I just heard, if anyone was going to cast aspersions about her having her tutor stay in the same house as her, she was like, I'll just pretend that we're married. I need your help. And then it comes back to bite her. And like that shift of power is as truly difficult as the previous ascension of Jared as hero was satisfying. And I think it makes the rest of the book really difficult. Is this like complete commitment to character, but also to like resolving every little loose thread in the story.
1: Fair. Absolutely fair. When they were sequestered in Dorset and it was just them and the Hellions and Mrs. Bird, it was much more enjoyable than what happens in the preceding chapters in London.
0: Yeah, I think there's a real desire in this text to be zesty and spicy. In fact, in spite of having like what is otherwise like Jared is interesting in that he's like sexy. He's good at sex. He's not like any other hero We've read so far. So I imagine he was a very cool side of the pillow in 1993 if you were consuming a lot of romance. But I think beyond the like good feeling of falling in love, I don't know if this setup carries a lot of titillation, right? past that point. Like its insistence on being like a pirate adventure story when she's only going from Dorset to London and like the real adventure story exists in this diary. But like we're not actually interested in this adventure itself. We're interested in the translation of the vague clues that lead to like this like complicated family reckoning about class. And like that all sounds cool on paper, but it leads to a lot of different plot lines. And you can tell that this is a pretty meticulous writer in the insistence on closing every gap. It reminded me of I heard a conversation on a different podcast recently about Christopher Nolan films. And uh, what was the dream one called? Inception? Inception. And when Inception first came out, everyone was like psyched on Inception, right? Like everyone thought it was the greatest movie. People were like, wow, this is so smart. And then a couple of years of letting it bake, people realized like it's so full of plot holes. And so now it's fashionable to hate Inception. In spite of the plot holes, it's still like memorable, right? You remember it. It was captivating. This book has almost zero plot holes, (laughs) but... I don't know if I care to remember all the storylines.
1: I think that's right. And I think that like, as you say, the shift in the power dynamic, what was so pleasurable about having Jared be the tutor and her being the boss was both his true deference to her and like his taking stuff off her plate. And so then when she becomes the Viscountess, she has a bunch of stuff that she is and has to do. Like she's expected to do and she has to do it as the Viscountess. And Jared tries to shield her as much as possible from it. But like they have to have a bigger staff. They have to have a bigger house. They have to have this, that and the other thing. And like she loses time and like she loses freedom.
0: Right. And he starts insisting like I am now really and truly the head of the household, not just in function. Right. And you can't treat me like
1: an employee. And And so like there's a difference here, kind of like as we discussed in one of our recent episodes about Jane Eyre, where it's like when she calls him Jared, when she calls him my lord, when she calls him Chilhurst, Chilhurst being the tutor my lord being the V-count and Jared being their intimate partnership together. Right. He wants to be called Jared all the time. Even when he's being dictatorial and she doesn't like it.
0: Yes. And that's the thing is like now, suddenly the fact that he like manages every aspect of the household and is in fact the owner of the household, like legally, really creates a weird situation. And this is when things kind of start to get wobbly, right? Like, so it is discovered that Dimitri's brother who has become quite fond of our heroine. Like, this is another issue. The... tumultuous, violent, young, handsome man character starts flirting with our heroine. And I liked it. (laughs) I was not against it. But he does all of the traditional hero things where he domineers against her. He like stands over her shoulder and whispers in her ear. He takes her aside at a ball when it's inappropriate and cowardly. Like Jared is always so upfront about his romantic feelings for her. Right. And this guy kind of dodges and evades. And it's titillating whenever he says, like, I've got a quest on you. You know, it's like, very cute and like does he or does he not you know like with most romance novels (laughs) and he challenges Jared to a duel again and Jared says I'm gonna do it this time and so our heroine conspires with Demetria and Constance to prevent this from happening she's gonna lock him in the attic and she really prepares it she gives him a cold lunch a chamber pot some candles and he's very he acquiesces right and he's very gentle and it's it's quite nice. She's talking to him through the door. He keeps calling her my dear. I'm like, there are only
1: two people in the entire world who can get away with my dear. And it's my beloved Uncle Bill calling his wife my dear. And it's like very specific romance heroes. Jared being one of them. Yeah, It's not very many.
0: Love it. But there's something very sensual about that scene where she's apologizing and he's talking to her through the door and it's in complete darkness, right? And in my head I was like, "Oh wow, he's like acceding to this." And like we're in his perspective and he's thinking about how, like how clever she is and how careful and thoughtful and how impressed he is that she pulled it off. And then we immediately find out that he's just going to go out through a secret passage that she doesn't know about. And then we discover that like he's going to then like throw throw a dagger at an assailant who has entered the home, right? And save her life. And then we discover that he actually had this plan all along to frighten his rival at the duel without anyone getting shot, right? This very clever plan. Like he had everything all tied up. And everyone just keeps telling him how clever he is. And that's when I realized... That even when we try to get away, even when something comes so close to, like, an egalitarian depiction of a romance in a romance novel, we're still eating out of the garbage can of ideology. Like, he still has to be utterly in control. He's still three chess pieces ahead of the heroine, right? Yeah, I mean, where it matters, like she's able to decode the diary
1: and stuff in ways that he wasn't able to. But like, that's also not his thing. But he also doesn't
0: give a fuck. Exactly. And the book clearly puts a value statement on what he's doing over what she and Magnus and Thaddeus are interested in.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Although I do really love that chapter where he's trapped in the dark and he's so proud of her. I'm like, I hate that I love it so much. And he's like, my clever wife. Look at what she did. Look at look at how good she did it. I just like...
0: Yeah. Ooh, she almost got me. But she doesn't have the same institutional knowledge I have, nor does she have the same physical power I have. So thank God I got out of this, right? In order to save her, this poor lamb in the wilderness.
1: And he's also so magnanimous in his victory. And he's like, if you'd
0: asked for my opinion, I would have told you that doing this was silly. Yeah, exactly. And then like tables turned. The hero is not the like passionate, confused, artistically minded type, right? It's the heroine. And he has all of the faculties to be in control of a situation and to be hyper aware. But the ultimate result is the same, right? Like that just almost confers too much power to the hero. Once the realization dawns in the text that he's a V-count, right? It undoes the egalitarian-ness in a way that's, you know, it's not like it's unpleasant to read, but it's there. So with that in mind, let's hawk our own mother's diamond, ruby, and emerald necklace. This week's
1: romance is brought to you by Love at First, an uplifting and unforgettable story of
0: love and second chances by Kate Claiborne. Second chances and guess what? Shakespeare retelling. Isabeau, are you psyched? It's not just me! This has
1: appeared on bestseller lists since Sarah McLean and Jasmine Gilroy and Alicia Rye and
0: Sonali Dev have all recommended it. I know those names. I also know Kate Claiborne because her book Love Lettering was a pretty big deal last year. And her self-published Chance of of a Lifetime
1: series was featured in O Magazine and Washington Post. What's love at first about?
0: According to the presser, 16 years ago, a teenaged Will Sterling saw, or rather heard, the girl of his dreams. Standing beneath an apartment building balcony, he shared a perfect moment with a lovely, warm voiced stranger. It's a memory that has never faded, though he's put so much of his past behind him. Now an unexpected inheritance has brought Will back to that same address where he plans to offload his new property and get back to his regular life as an overworked doctor. Instead he encounters a woman, two balconies above, who's uncannily familiar.
1: No matter how surprised Nora Clark is by her reaction to handsome curious Will, or the whispered pre-dawn conversations they share, she won't let his plans ruin her quirky close-knit building. Bound by her loyalty to her adored grandmother, she sets out to foil his efforts with a little light sabotage. But beneath the surface of their feud is an undeniable connection a balcony, a star-crossed couple, a fateful meeting. Maybe it's the kind of story that can't work out in the end, or maybe it's the perfect second chance.
0: Brass tacks, this bad boy is actually a sweet boy, described as Mary Ballow-esque. It's got quirky side characters. It's a reimagining of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Ever heard of it?
1: Glad those teens will finally get the HEA they deserve. Reminds me of the gentrification-imbued retelling of Pride and Prejudice we read, Pride. If that sounds like it's calling you out or your balcony, pickup, love at first by Kate Claiborne from Our Pals at Kensington. Okay, Morgan, you asked a really good question in our sort of pre-notes, and I want to go back to your discussion about craft work. And you asked the question, what makes a character whole? And I want to get into that in terms of Olympia and Jared.
0: When I posed the question, I wasn't thinking so much about like Olympia and Jared, because I think typically our romance novels have really holistic heroes and heroines. But the side characters in this text are also whole, right? Gifford, Demetria's brother, Demetria herself, even Constance, who's just Demetria's gal pal. Her motivations are clearly rendered. I can picture her in my head. Magnus and Thaddeus. But like, it's not like their character development gets any more like page time than the average side character in a romance. And so I wonder what makes them feel more complete.
1: You know, I have a theory, but I'm not sure that it's right. So we can talk about this. What's your theory? I think these side characters are made whole by their relation to our main characters. Because I agree. I think especially Constance and Demetria and to a lesser extent the boys and Mrs. Bird are made whole characters by our understanding of their relation to Jared and Olympia. So like in Constance in particular when it's all revealed that Demetria and Constance were the lovers that Jared caught his fiance in flagrante delicto with. That it was a woman all along! And that it was Constance. And Constance says this thing where she's like Jared was never going to call out a woman and he was never going to dishonor Demetria or me or himself that way. And so like both her piercing acknowledgement of what Jared was or wasn't going to do both tells us something about her understanding of our main character, but also tells us something about her and this thing that she's been thinking about. Like She's also the one who's been trying to get Demetria to like rein in her shitty brother Gifford. And I think in that way they're given life through their relation. Like Mrs. Bird we understand as a very protective housekeeper, and we understand that through the ways in which she is interacting and interacts in relation to Olympia. And there's a scene with the boys where we know that they've been traumatized by being passed around to various family members, and like Jared and Olympia are interrupted in the middle of a sex scene and one of the boys had cried out in a nightmare and she goes up to comfort him and Jared goes with her. And it's in that scene that we learn more about the main characters but we also learn more about the side characters because by the end of that scene both Robert and the other boy have walked in and Robert asks like I hope he doesn't have very many more nightmares because like, I don't want her to send us away and like, I, you know, I know that this is wearing on her patience and Jared's like this isn't wearing on her patience. And so like the communication of that fear and then the like relevatory thing that it does for our main characters makes the secondary characters more whole
0: is my thinking. That makes so much sense because I think what's different about this book overall is how deeply empathetic the entire text is and how deeply empathetic each character is to one another. We touched on the fact that Jared wants to get to know people's stories right before he assumes anything. But I also think about Constance revealing like, my brother and i were from a bad situation and i had to let him take on this obsession with family because he had so much energy where else was he going to put it he could have put it into some really destructive paths he could have put it in, into gambling house and like a gambling addiction is kind of an overall theme of the book because we discover yet another subplot that Jared's like man has been embezzling from the family fortunes be- to pay off gambling debts right and the book is even sympathetic to him when he takes Olympia by gunpoint. And I think you're right. The texts, empathy for each character and each character's empathy for one another. It isn't that individual characters are given a lot of page time. It's that their webs to each other. The systems that they're a part of are very clearly laid out. And so we can trace these pathways and make interesting assumptions about the depth of each person.
1: I think that's exactly right. Like the web actually gives us a lot to work with. And I think this is a book that I wouldn't say like overly trusts its readers. Like this overt attention to tying up every single loose end, especially at the end, got to be kind of a little bit of a slog.
0: But it's interesting because I feel like it doesn't trust the reader to not complain. Like it's not that it doesn't trust the reader to not understand. It almost assumes the reader is going to want to fixate on too much. Yeah, yeah. Like I felt
1: trusted to know how these webs of empathy would work, but I didn't feel trusted to like... Not give a shit about... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I think Mrs. Bird is a great example of this because she is like a goofy, bumbling housekeeper. She's understood as this embarrassing character. But right before it becomes too much, we discover that Jared's butler is very attracted to Mrs. Bird. And suddenly the fact that this like well-to-do, structured person appreciates Mrs. Bird in this way redeems some of her dignity, a little bit in the book and the fact that she cares so deeply redeems her dignity it, it, it is remarkable for all of like as exhausting as it is to read like pages and pages of dialogue about a fucking treasure map that we're never going to see the treasure right like the character work in this text is so brilliant and i never thought about it before but empathy sympathy is absolutely a tool of character development speaking of mrs bird and graves what was your sexiest part I do
1: love because like in that scene where Jared is like telling Graves that he has to like function with this very unfunctional housekeeper who is like suddenly thrust into a situation she never fucking dreamed of. Nora has like the skill set to potentially handle. She's going to have to learn a lot on the job and he's like don't be shitty to Mrs. Bird. She's like part of this fucking household like and Mr. Graves is like she and I have already had a conversation. It's cool. I like her a lot. I think you're right to say that she's redeemed in that moment in a lot of particular ways. But my sexiest part is and I've thought a lot about this because in a very un-Isabeau move Jared says a lot. He has a lot of speeches about, like, her being this beautiful siren and, like, all this other... And, like, that was my feeling, too. I was like, God, are you, like, Phantom of the Opera? Like, what (laughs) is this? Like... Like I was I was rolling my eyes and I was like, this is so unlike me.
0: <laughs> Whatever. I did not care for the siren metaphors.
1: Oh, me neither. It was like way over deployed. But my sexiest part was that first move that she makes when she still thinks he's a tutor and she's like, I don't want to seem overbold, but I want to have a sexual relationship with you. Would you be open to that? And he's like, I would indeed. And then he just like picks her up by the butt and puts her on her desk and they like start going to town on one another. I was like yes absolutely they also like n- don't make it to a bed until very late in this book
0: well it's always in her library in her office because that's the most couth place for them to be alone together
1: Anyway, what was your sexiest part?
0: Talk about turning tables. My sexiest part, I really appreciated. I didn't like the siren stuff. But I did appreciate being in Jared's perspective during sex scenes. Now, one thing I want to note, second half of the novel, they're all fade to black. But in the first half, being in Jared's perspective, he talks about her body being desirable, but in all of these, like, really interesting ways. And this is a book that, like, is really rooted in the Regency via the costume, via the clothing. Like, I think about the fact that the director of Pride and Prejudice in 2005 specifically said he didn't want any two specific Regency costumes because he thought they were ugly. And I think that's something we don't confront very often. But this text really, like, by just making them sound appealing, makes them appealing. Like, at one point, he, like, throws her down on a bed and her dress just goes up to her knees and he sees her stockings and you're like picturing wool stockings but like the zoomed in male gaze view of the stockings is appealing and the fact that like at one point he talks about how her skin above her wool socks feels like rose petals that's so appealing. Her hair always falling out of her like ugly little cap that falls out right as an indicator that like it's about to go down is very appealing and the way he drinks her in visually is one of the more satisfying working throughs of the male gaze and what is yeah, not a very cute costume era in spite of the fact that we keep returning to it.
1: Absolutely and I like I want to comment on this thing because like I think as you talk about his male gaze. It's also like his male confidence. Like there's like one I think like Burt Reynolds moment where she talks about his chest but like the fantasy of this gaze is like how attractive she is and how appreciative he is of her body. And there's a scene like we talked about earlier where she's like pulled out of this ball by Gifford Seaton, and he knows that it's bad and like she doesn't because she's a naive country lass or whatever. And like Jared sees her and like gets her out of the garden and then like rather than like having some weird jealous row which I think is a hundred percent an expectation I had for that coming scene he's like do you want to tell me what you guys talked about and he's like so fucking reasonable and she's like yes I'd love to tell you it turns out that he's actually your great great cousin and
0: like that kind of implicit trust where like he just treats her like an adult. So it's important to note that as women we also carry the male gaze right? Like we're inculcated with it. Yeah, totally. I saw this TikTok recently of this guy who posted like, explain to me how I get more matches on Tinder, assumably with this picture and it's like him smiling on a mountain versus when I had this picture and it's like a mirror selfie with he's got like a pump on like he's very muscular and not wearing his shirt and a person stitched it and was like, I'm so glad you asked. This is a theory of the male gaze versus the female gaze. And she was like, you were presenting the male gaze version of maleness. And I think that oftentimes happens in romance novels because we are so inculcated with the male gaze that we're like, big muscle, big man, be aggressive. Whereas, you know, the male gaze is much more satisfying whenever it's doing its job, which is to like sexually observe a woman in a like consensual sensual situation as opposed to like deciding whether or not to purchase a cheeseburger and so it helps if the woman looks like the cheeseburger has come on her face right like that's whenever it becomes like super abrasive or whatever the male gaze is like i will fight you to the death for her labia right like that's also unappealing
1: yeah It's like the menswear daily version of Hugh Jackman versus like the people or like women's house or whatever. Where like one, he's like a dad and affable and like wearing a sweater and one, he's got like veins popping out yeah, of his pectorals. Yeah. And it's like men want that, but I'm like, that guy's going to kill me in my sleep.
0: Yeah, I don't feel safer on that person.
1: I definitely want the sweater.
0: But then when the male gaze is like, I like looking at your woolly stocking calves <laughs> because it reminds me of your rose petal thighs and it's like a zoomed in of the woolly stocking calves. Oh, it's good. It's good. It's titillating. It's good. It's titillating. In a really just like completely satisfactorily I feel no problematicness kind of way. What was your weirdest part? so I think my
1: weirdest part is really like the back half juxtaposition of the power dynamic and I think part of it comes out where it's like in a charitable read I think because Jared is suddenly around people who expect this of him he like lives up to that expectation where he wasn't that way in Dorset so he got to be like a more authentic version of himself like the better version of himself the self that we all fell in love with Yeah, and like that Jared doesn't and hasn't existed in its full authenticity in london because of family dynamics because of expectation because of whatever and like that collide i think was really jarring for me and i think like the text wanted it to be jarring for me and it was and i didn't like it
0: but does it even get satisfied at the end no not completely and
1: i think that's my weirdest part where it's like i understand how this conflict arose in the text and i understand what it's doing but like it doesn't solve it for me and like that i think is my weirdest part for such a well-crafted tech
0: yeah like i just wanted one more scene where they're back in dorset and they still live in the country cottage and he's still teaching the kids And he just like, you know, allows his family to enjoy the townhouse in London. And he is just having the life he chose in spite of the life he was born into. And not unlike what Graves does with Mrs. Bird, he is granting dignity to that lifestyle choice over the one. That historical romance so normally leans on. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of tropes, historical romance leans on, give me a beat because my weirdest part is unself aware colonialism. Unself aware colonialism. Oh my God, it's so gross. It's so gross. So what is our heroine's research interest, you may ask? Great question. Our quite literal armchair anthropologist is interested in cultural practices of people of the West Indies. And in spite of the fact that she has never even been there, people refer to her papers, her published works, and seek her out for personal consultation so that she can describe the cultural practices of people she's never even seen from a distance. Yep. It's not like it comes up a ton, but it is the central mover of the entire love story. (laughs) Yep. She wants this diary because she's not interested in treasure hunting. In fact, she thinks it's uncouth for an anthropologist by any other name, right? They're not using that term. She thinks it's uncouth for them to be interested in a treasure hunt. They should only be interested in the commodification of people.
1: Yeah, especially for the West Indies. Like, what we learn is that this treasure is hidden on an island off the west coast of Jamaica. But, like, nothing is said here of, like, what was being done in Jamaica by the British or who or why the ancestor of Jared's would have been there. Or, like, what kind of people are currently serving the empire with or without will on Jamaica or any other island there.
0: And in fact, our hero tricks our heroine into quote-unquote weird sex like sex in the daylight by saying this is how a certain primitive culture does it he doesn't say primitive okay okay he doesn't say primitive.
1: He says native culture.
0: Native culture. He says, there's actually a culture of peoples that I've seen in person with all of my made up bullshit stories I tell you to get you to have sex with me. That's like, oh, we only have sex when the sun is up. What do you think about that? I guess we better try it. And she considers herself a worldly woman. And she's insistent on her own worldly womanness fact, right? She's like, I'm a woman of the world, meaning I've read books about other places in the world. That's what she means. And it is the most white feminism bullshit. What's funny about that bullshit is that, like, it does
1: have a critical failure where she says, I'm a woman of the world. And Jared understands that to mean that she's sexually experienced. And then it turns out that she's a virgin. And he's like, you said you were a woman of the world. And she's like, I've read a lot of books. I know how it works. Yeah. And he's like, that's not the
0: same. But it's like a charming, like, it is a joke in the book, right? Her. It's a joke. Her lack of self-awareness is kind of a joke, right? She's constantly constantly arguing with everyone that Jared is, like, a fiery, passionate person because he kissed her on the vulva, right? Like, how could they know anything about him? And, like, you know, the fantasy is, like, oh, she brings out the side of him that he, like, doesn't really have, right? But, like, it's, like, a charming, silly joke and not, like, a, holy shit, can you believe that these people are informing the rest of the world about these other people? That this sex idiot baby is telling? <laughs> is the it- Expert, quote unquote. Yeah, isn't well respected, feared and adored. Yeah. And it's like, that's the thing is like, yeah, it's a joke, but it's like, it's a joke. Yeah. Does that make sense? Did the total difference register? We're meant to be laughing with her instead of at her super problematic attitudes and behaviors.
1: Absolutely. And I think, like, the laughing with her, when it's applied to her, like, when she's like, I'm a worldly woman, he's like, what that means is not what you think it means, is only funny if it applies to her, and is not funny as it is applied to peoples that England at that moment is obliterating.
0: Yeah. Well, mance or no mans <laughs>
1: <laughs> On that note, I know! Because it's a world! Wow! <laughs> It's a whoa. I am a hundred percent going to go back through Amanda Quick's catalog. I mean, so here's where I'm going to land on this where it's like the colonialism, super gross. Like, I'm glad that it wasn't more omnipresent. I'm glad that it, like, as a central
0: mover, it was like only tendentially central. Wasn't omnipresent to us because I don't know what this reading experience would be like with different identities. Super fair.
1: But what I can say for this heroine hero dynamic was that it felt fresh and for a 1993 that seems insane. The heroine was over the age of 18 which also is super good. She wasn't traditionally lithe, yet womanly.
0: She was like 31, right?
1: Yeah. And so like I loved that she was aged up. I love that she felt like she had a normal person body and that like it was still beautiful, attractive, sexy and all of those things. Same sex relationships that aren't zany. Yeah. She's like, yeah, my aunts and like Constance it's like, yeah, she's my lover. And I loved that. And that like this book had no judgment. Jared, our hero had no judgment, which taught everyone else how to deal with it. I loved The Founder's family aspect of it.
0: I wanna kiss Thaddeus, I wanna kiss Magnus, I wanna kiss Gifford, and I wanna kiss Jared. I wanna kiss all these wonderful gentle boys. Yeah. Men, not gentlemen. <laughs>
1: Not gentlemen.
0: Not like fedora
1: gentlemen. No, absolutely not. But I think they are gentle boys. Like Magnus and Thaddeus like really do want her to look pretty and they care about that.
0: And they're not idiots. Like that's the thing about cinnamon rolls and himbos. It's like that's the other thing is like the patriarchy wants you to think they're harmless, hapless idiots, right? Because then you let your guard down. Then you let your guard down. Jared is capable and yeah, it kind of fucking ruins the relationship. That's the other thing is like the problems with the novel bear themselves out as problems, at least in our reading. But it doesn't undermine the pleasure of someone taking care of things so that you, a woman, can be an absent-minded professor for once.
1: Right. They both struggled with the changed power dynamic and that he did really want her to call her Jared. And that like when she reminded him that he had dictatorial authority and she didn't like how he was using it, she had a way of calling his attention to it. And he had a way of understanding that, which, you know, kind of reminds me of Rochester and Jane, except Jane has no ability. To to call his attention to his dictatorialness. So yeah, it's a romance for me. I'm going to go through her entire back catalog. I'm also going to read her weird contemporary paranormal stuff that she writes under a different name. Like, I've found a new person that I'm, like, really
0: excited to investigate. And, like, that's a pleasure in all of its own. Yeah, it's always gratifying. It gratifies not only my personal preference for a certain kind of man who would be sexually attracted to me, right? It rejustifies my interest in the genre because it does show me that like this is a space for people who, you know, I enjoy the like reality TV-esque dramas of these like broken man children, violent, you know, I still find that interesting and captivating. I think we've talked about this before with heroines who more closely reflected us like it's nice to see that like this type of person is part of a love story. And I think that's a really powerful thing. Part of reading romance is to see like someone like you or someone that you might be attracted to as someone worthy of a love story, even if it does mean that like their family has to be pirates <laughs> to justify it.
1: Right. And that wouldn't it be nice if the Dread Pirate Roberts or Mandy Patinkin's Anigo Montoya was in love with you, too? Yeah. Or just Mandy Patinkin.
0: Or just, yeah, Mandy Patinkin. His TikTok is actually his son doing TikTok. <laughs> and he's mostly recording his mother. And here's something to keep you up at night. Not unlike former vice president Mike Pence, Mandy Patinkin refers to his wife as mom. No. Way. Yeah, he does. He does. At least when he's talking to his boy. Well, that
1: makes sense, though. Like, that's how my mom refers to my dad. Like, she calls him Dan.
0: He doesn't say your dad, right? He doesn't say your mom. He says mom. Yeah, my mom does that. She's like, dad said this. That's fucked up and weird.
1: I mean, only when she's talking to me, child. That's Pence. But Pence refers to her as mother in public. <laughs> in press as like conferences. He's like, mother and I. Like, he says that shit. My mom does not do that. That's Dan and I. But, like, when we're on the phone, she's like, she'll, she'll be like, yeah, your dad, you know, is on the tractor or whatever doing the stuff. Or she's like, you know, dad said blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's, like, interchangeable. But she would never refer to him as dad or father in public. I'm like, why do you have to ruin this stuff for me? <laughs> (laughs) Like, why can't you just let me have the Mandy Patinkin TikTok? (laughs) (laughs) You just have to put them in the same thing as failed Governor
0: Pence of Indiana? I just like hear it. I'm like, oh my God.
1: I have to share this toxicity with someone else. (laughs) Thanks,
0: Morgan. I'm pretty sure I saw a TikTok wherein he was addressing her and said mom. I
1: mean, he's like a bonafide cultural TikTok movement because I read a feature about that TikTok and I was so impressed because like you had, you know, visited upon me several of the TikToks of Mandy Patinkin. And then they did a New York Times feature in the Sunday Times about it. And I was like, ha! Because of Morgan, I was here before you.
0: (laughs) Cutting edge! (laughs) I know That's why I said lethribians, beings earlier. <laughs> so like TikTok, because it's from a conservative nation and it actually has really strict uh, speech rules, like if you use the word rape in your captions, and most people that I follow use captions because accessibility is really important for most of the people I follow. It'll delete your account, right? It'll freeze it. It'll cudgel your viewership, right? And so people will say like vaguely evocative things like R, at sign, P-E or something like that. But I think some people just like overly anticipate the issue. And so someone recently posted in their captions, they used le number three bean, which was clearly like an autocorrect, like they were trying to be clever. And then instead of doing BN, the thing did bean. And then they also had like one of those text readers. So it was like a computer voice saying like, dressing like an L3 bean. And someone stitched it and was like, I will only respond to L3 bean now.
1: It's <laughs> good. L3 bean. So anyways,
0: TikTok is the only thing I do outside of this podcast now. send people TikToks.
1: It's great. I love having my TikTok curated.
0: Weirdly, it's not giving me a lot of senior chihuahuas, and I want to apologize to producer Nick for that. It's really throttled the senior chihuahua content, but I am still in the market to get you a senior chihuahua for your belated birthday present. So that's something to look forward to.
1: I just watched a video of a senior chihuahua saving his senior human uh,
0: during a seizure. He went and got help and, like, brought help. Yeah. Senior chihuahuas are great, and I am sorry to say, like, don't start planning any names because that chihuahua already has a name that it's connected with. Obviously. And it's probably something like Bailey or Spike pico ugh! Oh, i told you about my
1: neighbor who had the itty bitty chihuahua committee he rescued chihuahuas and he had like six of them at any given time and so he walked them all on like this like weird web of leashes it was like one leash but then all these little leashes were connected and sometimes he just like would not have the leash at all and then it was just like this like wall of chihuahuas just like running down the block i miss that anyway
0: I am so glad you brought up Little Bitty Chihuahua Committee, because I'm excited to share with you some very special content.
1: I hated chihuahuas until I met this man who rescued chihuahuas. And of course, he said the thing that like melts hearts everywhere. He's like, I didn't rescue them. They rescued me. And I was like, that does not melt my heart. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if you knew this person, like baby, baby, he had a lot going on. It's like, I didn't understand feminism until I had a daughter. It's a little bit like that, yeah. This is a good this is a good singing episode for us too, I feel like you know. <laughs> we're far enough in our like podcasting careers where we're gonna do the sing-along episode.
0: Yeah. Like we're just
1: gonna like do that. Let's
0: do a quick vocal warm-up and then we'll do our outro. Red, yellow, yellow, leather. Red <laughs> leather, leather, yellow, yellow. Red.
1: What's that one where they do? Ha! Ha! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: with that loosen your stairs
1: but never your principles zip it up bow
0: whoa golly gee thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance.
1: Womance is hosted by Isabeau. That's me.
0: And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin.
1: Our web mistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak.
0: And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best.
1: If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with <laughs> us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, Womans on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com.
0: You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week. Mwah!